And I rolled a night, tumbled and I cried the whole night long. And I rolled a night, tumbled and I cried the whole night long. And I rose this morning, Mama, and I didn't know right from wrong. Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this podcast, I... Read through American Writers, 100 pages per episode, while giving my thoughts about it. My main source is the Library of America, which is a really wonderful collection of American writers that's been published for over 20 years now. Anyways, we are continuing our series into the novels of the Harlem Renaissance. And for today, we're going to be looking at Wallace Thurman's The Blacker, The Berry. This novel... The Blacker the Berry is in some ways the opposite of the last two novels we have read. Those were about lighter-skinned black women trying to navigate urban life and white society. In one case, this comes about through moving to Europe, and another comes from the phenomenon of passing, where a, a black woman with light enough skin is just you know, lives her life as a white woman. In The Blacker the Berry, we're presented with a very dark-skinned young black woman who's trying to move up in African-American society through her education and finds that skin color is a barrier to her due to prejudices within the African-American community as well as within larger racist society. From the time that she's very young, she's told by her family that she's too dark. It's how she matures in this situation and comes to terms with her color and her place in life that is the story of this this novel. And this novel, I have to say, is really a nice little gem. It's short. It's only about 100 pages, so I can do it in one episode. But it's just really memorable and, and striking, and it's got a lot of good stuff in it. Um, it's a good kind of one-day, one-sitting read almost. The author, Wallace Thurman, was born in 1902 in Utah. Um, and and this, when I saw this, I was immediately reminded of Langston Hughes, who will be the author of the next novel we're going to look at you know, as a, being a Westerner. Um, but born in Utah, he was from a single-parent family, and his grandmother was a bootlegger. In 1922, he got involved in journalism after shifting his major at the University of Utah to journalism. He moved to the University of Southern California, but he did not finish his degree there. He founded an African-American journal centered on the experiences of blacks in the West. For a while, he lived in, with... Arna Bontemps, another Harlem Renaissance writer, um, most famous for the novel Black Thunder, which is about Gabriel's revolt, and we'll look at that in, in a couple weeks. In New York, he tried his efforts at other literary magazines without much success. Um, he, he Even his marriage to, to uh, Lewis Thompson broke up after only a few weeks, so he seemed to have had a lot of failure in his early life in New York City. Thompson later said that he often declared his intention to commit suicide. He was very moody and well suggested that he was a closet homosexual. In 1929, The Black of the Berry was published and his play Harlem was put on. So he starts to have a little bit of success. He wrote another two novels in 1932. 
He spent some time in 1933 and 1934 in Hollywood before returning to New York. He died at the age of 32 from tuberculosis, which was probably made much worse by his heavy drinking, his alcoholism, um, which really affected the later part of his creative life. So that's the story of Wallace Thurman. He died incredibly young, very tragically. Um, but that, that's not, we've seen that before uh, in this, this podcast. Um, Frank Norris, I was thinking of, who, who also died around the age of 30. Now, in a sense, this novel is a bit like Plumbun. Um, if you, you can go back and listen to my last three episodes on Plumbun if you want to know about that. In Plumbun, we start with a character who's unsure about her color. Um, now, the character there in that novel, Angela, could pass as a white woman. And our hero in this nama, novel, Emma Lou Morgan, she can't. Um, but both, both characters have something very similar in that they both become very tired and exhausted by the constant evasion of, of who they are. And they have a kind of epiphany. Now, it's coming from different directions, but they kind of get to a similar place in accepting their identity. For Emma Lou, it's about accepting that her skin color is not going to change. For uh, Angela and Plumbun, it's more about accepting her heritage and her, her, her culture and her upbringing and her family. Now, we have seen plenty of evidence in other Harlem Renaissance novels that being lighter skin made things easier on younger women in particular, and less so for men, but particularly for younger women. Several characters we met preferred to date or marry lighter skinned women, for instance. So there was just more social opportunity for lighter skinned black women. At least that's what the argument made by many Harlem Renaissance writers are. Now, from the opening pages of the novel, we learn that being dark-skinned is a problem for Emma Lou. She, not that she minded being black. This is from the novel. Not that she minded being black. Being a Negro necessitated having colored skin, but she did mind being too black. She couldn't understand why such could be the case. Couldn't comprehend the cruelty of the natal attenders who had allowed her to be so dipped, as it were, in indigo ink. There, when there were so many more pleasing colors on nature's palette. Biologically, it wasn't necessary either. Her mother was quite fair, so was her mother's mother, and her mother's brother, and her mother's brother's son, but none of them had had a black man for a father. Why had her mother married a black man? Surely there had been some eligible brown-skinned men around. So we learn right away that this is, this is uh, a problem for, for our character. Uh, and it's partially reinforced by the family, to be sure. The dark skin is a legacy of her father who, to kind of make it worse, abandoned her mother. It is likely part of this tension within the family over her dark skin, which they actually try to reduce through these creams and skin bleaching and chemicals, you know, hair straightener, all that kind of stuff. And this is really a big theme in this novel is all these kind of commercial products that were available for trying to get dark skin lighter. There's only one character around Emma Lou as she's growing up that is more comfortable with her dark skin, and that's this man, Uncle Joe. He is going to encourage her to go to college, uh, especially at the University of Southern California, because he says there'll be more black people there. Now, our setting at the early part of the novel is Idaho. Like our author, our character is a Western black. Her family seems to be the product of exodusers who fled the South uh, for Kansas in the decades after slavery ended. Quote, 
They wished to be as much physically and mental space between them and the former home of their parents as was possible. That is why they left Kansas, for in Kansas there had been too many reminders of what their parents had escaped and from what they wished to flee. Kansas was too near the sole former slave belt, too accessible to disgruntled Southerners who, deprived of their slaves, were inculcated with an easily communicable virus, black hatred. Then, too, in Kansas, all Negroes were considered as belonging to one class. It didn't matter if you or your parents had been freemen before the Emancipation Proclamation, nor did it matter if you were almost three-quarters white. You were, nevertheless, classed with those hordes of hungry, ragged, ignorant black folk arriving from the South in such great numbers, packed like so many stampeding cattle in dirty, manure-littered boxcars. So that's a bit about her family heritage. So off she goes to L.A. to college. Uh, her immediate feelings there are positive. She's able to make friends, and she's able to start to walk away from the rhetoric of her family that white is better. So she starts to, um, she even says at one point when she gets there that her Uncle Joe had been right. That once you're surrounded with other black people, you realize that complexion isn't as, as important. Um, And she starts to question this, this kind of mantra she's beginning. She got in her upbringing about, about whiteness being superior to, to blackness. But although she starts to move in that direction, she gets frustrated in her efforts. Mostly because of her own prejudice, not about skin color so much, but really about class and about education level and about region and about background and upbringing and, and uplift and all that kind of stuff. She meets a black woman named Hazel Mason who she sees instantly as lower class, Southern, and vulgar. Now, like Emma Lou, Hazel Mason very much wants to make friends. She's very lonely. She's, she's from the Deep South in UCLA. She's kind of a fish out of water, even more so than Emma Lou. She desperately wants these friends, so she kind of clings to Emma Lou. Um, but, you know, Emma sees her as really low class and vulgar and Southern. She's upset by the way she speaks. She uses a little, you know, where is it? Uh, one of the first things she said, you know, was grammatically incorrect and it bothered Emma Lou. This is what she says when she meets Emma. Tiresome, ain't no name for it. Is you a new student? And then Emma Lou responds very clearly, I am. And trying to, you know, basically correcting her, her, her grammar. So Emma Lou basically wants nothing to do with her, but Hazel is also deeply lonely and wants a friend. This friendship with Hazel eventually gets in the way of Emma Lou entering sororities. So even, but even when she loses the burden of Hazel, and I think Hazel drops out after like a semester or something or not, not long, but Emma Lou still learns she'll never be fully accepted into the class of black leaders on campus because of her dark skin. And this becomes like a wait, an awakening for her. That basically her skin color is even going to get in her way of integrating into, into uh, the black community on campus. Um, there's a lot here that I, I could quote, um, but I, I'm not. It's, it's a... It's a, it's a th thick novel it's a rich novel it's like almost there's almost no fat almost no waste in here and it's really tempting to just quote long passages but i'll try to resist it as much as possible but this is on page 721 of the library of american version 
The people who, in Emma Lou's phrase, really mattered, the businessmen, the doctors, the lawyers, the dentists, the more moneyed Pullman porters, hotel waiters, bank janitors, major domos, in fact, all the Negro leaders and members of the Negro upper class were either light-skinned themselves or else had light-skinned wives. A wife of dark complexion was considered a handicap unless she was particularly charming, wealthy, or beautiful. An ordinary-looking dark woman with no suitable mate for a Negro man of prominence. The college youths on whom the future of the race depended practiced this precept of their elders religiously. It was not the girls in the school who were prejudiced. They had no reason to be. But they knew full well that the boys with whom they wished to associate their future husbands would not tolerate a dark girl unless she had, like Vern, many things to compensate for her dark skin. End quote. So that, that's the situation. Um, it's, you know, it's a realization that even within... It's something she didn't notice so much in Idaho. I mean, of course, she had her family who was trying to lighten her skin, but she didn't have that many black people around her. So she didn't understand how deeply felt this racial prejudice that it was within, within the African-American community itself over darker-skinned uh, women in particular. And even in that passage I just read, you see Thurman pointing out that it's really something that's affecting women more than it's affecting black men. Well, that summer, Emma Lou returns to Boise and starts a relationship with a young man named Weldon. She starts to fall from work very quickly, and it seems they, they even have sex. What the text says is that her date with Weldon leads to her first intimate sexual contact. And later, the question of her loss of virtue comes up. By this point in the novel, she has also decided not to go back to school, and she perhaps wants to marry Weldon. Her dreams are dashed, though, when he tells her that, she, that he's going to take a job as a Pullman porter to save up money for the future. An important point here is that Emma blames her color for Weldon leaving. Emma Lou then decides to go back to school, a process that's summed up just basically in one short paragraph at the end of the first chapter of the novel. It's, so it's right away the, this kind of these two major events in her early life in college. First, uh, her Frustration at kind of entering sororities and becoming friends with other black women is is one point. And the other is this relationship with Weldon, which she blames on her own uh, basically ugliness. She, she sees herself as ugly at this point. And that's why she lost this this man, Weldon. All right. So that brings us into part two of the novel, Harlem. In this part of the novel, Emma Lou tries to find her place in Harlem. As we discovered reading Quicksand by Nella Larson, it is hard for women to find work in new towns. And Emma Lou goes to an employment agency, which is the same thing the, um, what's her name, Helga in Quicksand had to do. She has to lie in order to get offered a typist job, but that doesn't pan out. It, basically, the same thing happens to her. She goes to the place and they, they, they think she's too dark skinned and basically reject her uh, for that. She returns to the agency and she's invited out to lunch with kind of the worker there or the manager, maybe Mrs. Blake. Yeah, she's the manager of the agency. Blake's intention in taking her out to lunch seems to be to lecture her on some important facts of life. Employers, even black employers, are not going to hire dark skinned women uh, willingly or, or commonly. Uh, once again, we learn just how much harder it is for, for dark skinned women than it is for dark skinned men to, to get ahead in life. Blake's advice is that she gets the education she needs to become a teacher because there will always be jobs available in teaching. So after the lunch, walking through town, 
Emma Lou gets hounded by some catcalls, but these turn into insults, and it's quite a humiliating moment for her. Quote, three noisy lads pass by. They saw Emma Lou and her reflection in the sunlit show window. The one closest to her cleared his throat and crooned out, loud enough for her to hear, There's a girl for you, Fats! Fats was one in the middle. He had a rotund form and a coffee-colored face. He was his shirt sleeves and he was in his shirt sleeves and carried a coat in his arms. Bell trousers, bottom trousers, hit all save the tips of his shiny tan shoes. Fats was looking at Emmalou too, but as he passed, he turned his eyes from her and broadcast a withering look at the lad who had spoken. Man, you know I don't haul no coal. There was loud laughter and the trio merrily clicked the metal-cornered heels on the sun-baked pavement as they moved away. Um, and that ends uh, part two, essentially chapter two. Of this, of this novel. So part three is called Alva. And it opens not with Emma, but with this young man, um, Alva. And he's, he's lighter skinned. He's of a mixed racial heritage. His father was Filipino. His mother was biracial. Um, a mulatto. So uh, he's kind of of a very different background than, 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 than Emma Liu. Um, now, Emma Lou has taken a job as a maid to an actress, Arlene Strange, and she acts in very vulgar dramas, uh, kind of vaudevillian kind of dramas that stereotype African-Americans in unfortunate ways. And Emma Lou is really bothered by this. She notices that it's pretty much only white people who go to these shows. Um, She calls it a mad caricature, the characters that get presented in the, these dramas. So she's bothered at it kind of just from racial politics. Of course, she's, she's fairly educated. I, she didn't finish college, but she did, you know, have a couple years of schooling. And, you know, she must have got some kind of awareness of the political climate through that. And, of course, she lived in Harlem, which was a very politicized place for, for young black people to live at the time. So she's really bothered by that, that she's kind of complicit in in these these shows now one night arlene and her brother get emma lou drunk and she ends up dancing with alva notice we only see alva getting up and then going to the cabaret which is just something really strong about his character and now that night alva and his roommate make jokes about emma lou again highlighting her dark skin it's very similar to the catcalling incident earlier in the story emma lou tries to get a job as a dancer at the cabaret, but she's rejected because she is, is again, too dark-skinned. So it's kind of like a repeating mantra almost that we, we find Emma Lou going through in this part of the story. Um, Alva runs into Emma Lou at the casino. They dance and have a nice night, and they even start to date to the chagrin of, of Alma's, Alva's roommate. So that ends part three. Okay, part four, Rent Party. So what is a rent party? Well, I knew these when I was in college. You know, these would be house parties that people charged a little bit of money at the door for, 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 you know, to enter and to go to the party. In those days, you know, that was in central Wisconsin in, in like the early, in the late 1990s. But in those days, one or two of those a month was enough to cover the rent on some of these houses that, that students were renting. So it was kind of a way of, of basically paying for the rent. And that, that's what... So that's a central event of this this chapter. Alva is laying low with Emma Lou and dating other girls more openly. 
the girl he's dating more openly is named Geraldine. And of course, she is a lighter skinned woman and someone that she's more willing to be seen in public with. He always took Geraldine to parties and dances. Geraldine, with her olive-colored skin and straight black hair, Geraldine, who of all the people he pretends to love, really inspired him emotionally as well as physically, the one person he contest, con, conquested without thought of monetary gain. He had to do something with Emma Lou, and release from the quandary presented itself from its most unexpected quarters. So, um, yeah, he's, so he's dating Geraldine more openly. He does, however, take Emma Lou to this rent party. And during this party, there's a central open discussion. It's really the central discussion about color in the novel that's kind of openly done by the characters. A lot of other things are just under the surface or in Emma Lou's mind or her experiences. But this is like bringing this conversation about color and the color line into the open. The major argument bounced around there is that color prejudice among blacks is understandable because they're merely reflecting the broader racial prejudices of white society. So... This the the dilemma that Emma Lou is facing every day of her life is merely just another sin of the color line. So what these African-Americans at the party end up doing is kind of pushing their own prejudices off and blaming it on, on white people. Um, and I don't really know what to think about this. I, I think on some level, it's, there's probably some historical truth to the fact that, you know, in a, in a white society, whiteness or a society dominated by whites, uh, whiteness is going to be privileged. It's, it's There's that scene in Malcolm X, of course, where they're reading the dictionary, right? In the movie Malcolm X, where they're reading the dictionary and they find all the, you know, positive characteristics of whiteness uh, under the term white and all the negative characteristics of, of black. So there might be something to that, but it does seem a bit of, of kind of passing the, the buck. There's a nice section in the novel where Thurman simulates Emma Lou's increasing state of drunkenness and wildness in this chapter. And she basically passes out, uh, you know, in the taxi, wakes up at home. And if you've ever done something like this, if you've ever had this happen before, you before, you'll know that feeling of anxiety over what you may have done when you wake up and you're like, how did I get here? Who brought me? What did I say? All that kind of stuff. And Emma Lou certainly blacked out that night um, from drinking too much. She more or less wakes up to her landlord accusing her of being a drunkard and breaking the rules of the boarding house she's living in. It's kind of one of those no boys allowed or no drinking allowed boarding houses. I, I think this novel's set in Prohibition, so it, it's, that's probably part of the uh, factor too. It was certainly written during Prohibition. So she's told that she has three days to find a new boarding house. Now, it's not entirely clear if the problem with the landlord was Emma Lou being drunk or if it was that it was a man who kind of brought her home late. It was Alva brought her home. But even in this scene, color comes out again as we witness Emma Lou's morning routine, which includes efforts to lighten her skin. So she's still doing these kind of rituals, these creams, these the hair straightener stuff, all the stuff she learned as a, as a child in, in Idaho. She's still doing that stuff, trying to lighten her skin color. Now, the rest of the chapter is about her declining relationship with Alva, Alva has no money. He tends to try to make money off the women he dates. And this is something we've seen before in the Harlem Renaissance novels. He basically lives off women, temporary work, and, and gambling. So he's, he's basically, she, she's feeling, she has feelings for him. She, she's falling in love with him. But he's basically not um, a very reliable um, man. And, it, you know, when we get to the novel, the next novel, uh, Not Without Laughter by Langston Hughes, we're going to have to really begin to take on this 
question of of how the black male is being presented in these Harlem Renaissance novels because it's pretty much universally unflattering. I, I can't think of any really positive portrayals. Really, I can't. Um, maybe if you can think of one from these novels we read, you can send me a, an email. But they're all pretty uh, negative in one way or another. Anyways, Alva takes Emmalou to a variety show that has some skits that make fun of darker-skinned black women. And these are actors in blackface. Emmalou becomes furious at Alva for taking her to this show. She refuses to go to such places with him again, and she kind of gets all huff, you know, puffed up and, and, and leaves. And the chapter ends with Alva coming home to find Geraldine there. Um, and she is pregnant with his child. So that ends part four. And we get to the final part of the novel, uh, part five, chapter five, the perific victory. Of course, a perific victory, if you don't know, is a, is a victory that's won at great cost. It comes from, you know, the wars between the Greeks in southern Italy and the Romans as they expanded uh, across Italy. Uh, Pyrrhus was a, I think it was a Greek, or was he a Roman? I think it was a Greek general who won a battle, but at such high cost that, that the war would eventually be lost. Um, Emma Lou has a new job working as a maid in a white family. The actress she is working for in that home is married to a sympathetic a man, a white man who's sympathetic to Harlem blacks. He's really interested in like the Harlem Renaissance and black culture and black politics. And he's encouraging her to get more of an education as well. So this is like the second or third time she's heard this kind of lecture from someone that maybe you need to just focus on getting an education. That's going to be our way to get beyond the color line. Right. And this is another more language of, of that era. It's kind of the Booker T. Washington idea. Right. That if you work hard, you put your nose to the grindstone, you build your skills, you find a useful craft or talent, then you can escape the worst of racial prejudices. Uh, now, of course, other people are going to reject that that's possible. And I'm not sure that's that really would have helped Emma Lou. But that's the lesson. She, that's the message she's getting from people around her. Now, it's two years later, and she still thinks about Alva a lot. In part, she wonders if it is her own sensitivity about color that ruined the, ruined the relationship. So she starts to blame herself. And this is, the, again, the second time where she starts to see color as the reason a relationship with someone she loved failed. So she goes to see Alva, and Geraldine opens the door. With this, we get a point of view shift to Alva and Geraldine. We learn that their child was born heavily deformed, um, perhaps, you know, with developmental disabilities. They can't really afford to care for the child, and they both think about infanticide uh, to solve their problem. I don't think they talk openly about it, but they both think internally about maybe just killing this child. Alva becomes sick and falls deeper into alcoholism. Geraldine plans to leave Alva as soon as she's able to afford to. Now, meanwhile, Alva's doing better. She is living at the YWCA. She has a boyfriend named Benson Brown, who is fairly light-skinned. It's not a good match, but his light skin is enough for M Emma Lou, or at least that's what the text tells us, that she's, you know, that's kind of what attracts her to him. And she goes to see Alva one day, and she learns that Geraldine has abandoned him. She finds him incredibly sick and the child without proper care. So it doesn't take her long to realize that this relationship with Alva won't work, but she does put in time basically trying to be a good foster mother to Alva Jr., taking care of her former lover and his son. And they kind of rekindle a bit of a relationship there, but it's really 
flawed and it's going to fail. When she later learns that Benson Brown is marrying her friend Gwendolyn, she makes a choice about her life and the novel comes to a, a pretty rapid end. And I'll, I'll read one paragraph here where we kind of get her, her final thoughts. Quote, but having arrived at this, what did it solve or promise for the future? After all, it was not the abstraction of her case, which at the present moment needed most elucidation. She could strive for a change of mental attitudes later. What she needed to do now was to accept her black skin as being real and unchangeable, to realize that certain things were, had been, and would be. And with this in mind, begin a life anew, always fighting, but not so much for acceptance by other people, but for acceptance of herself by herself. In the future, she would be eminently selfish. If people came into her life, well and good. If they didn't, she would live anyways, seeking to find herself in achieving, meanwhile, economic and mental independence. Then possibly, as Campbell Kitchen had said, life would open up for her. For it seemed as if the doors yielded more easily to her casual, self-centered individual than to the ranting, praying pilgrim. After all, it was the end that mattered. The one only wasted time and strength seeking facile open sesame means instead of push, pushing along a more difficult and direct path. So that's kind of her conclusion. The final scene is Emma Lou seeing Alva as he really is, basically a washed up drunk, and then her packing clothes to leave him. So that ends The Blacker the Berry. It's only about 100 pages long, but it has a lot of content packed into it. As I suggested before, the novel seems to mirror uh, Plum Bun. The largest difference between these two novels is that Emma Lou has no choice about her identity, and Angela in Plum Bun has the freedom to cross the color line, at least temporarily. Thurman ignores that stuff about creativity and creative authenticity that seems to drive Fawcett and focuses instead on Emma Lou's need to just accept her physical characteristics. So it's more about accepting a physicality than accepting an abstract identity or background or heritage. It is not about finding her place in the world or locating her creativity. It's about a basic acceptance of who she is physically. It's not even really about identity at all. She is not ever trying to be a different person. There's never this con internal conflict about who she is inside. She's pretty self-assured throughout the novel. She only tries to lighten her skin because of what everyone around her tells her and about the real limitations of dark-skinned women in the society she lives in. In fact, she overcomes many of these limitations in her life, both romantically and professionally anyways. In this sense, I like this novel better than Plum Bun. Uh, but I think they can be read together and contrasted quite well. So anyways, now is the part in the podcast where I start to look at the themes of, of the novel for comparison with other works. Okay, uh, the first theme obviously is the color line. Um, and particularly in this case, the, the color line at work, the color line in relationships, uh, the color line within the African-American community. And this has been a theme in every novel before it'll probably be a on the, in the series on the Harlem Renaissance anyways and it's going to be a theme of, of pretty much every novel coming up except maybe maybe one um, is not specifically dealing with with the color line in quite the same way but most do and that was a major theme and major concern of Harlem Renaissance authors um, another is this thing we've seen before is the commercialized relationship the people getting involved with each other largely for financial benefit uh, people taking advantage of each other. Um, and here we really see this with the character of Alva, who 
basically wants to be with women just so he can have them supplement his income so he doesn't have to work very hard. Um, and that's a really troubled thing that comes up a lot in these this series of, of texts, of novels. Um, we get a little bit of a more of a window into working class life, again, with the character of Alva, even Emma Lou, even though she's educated, she works kind of working class jobs as a maid, as a domestic servant and things like that. So um, we see some of the amusements enjoyed by people in the working class. Um, and it's, it's, it's good. It's, it's going to even be a bigger theme in the next novel, not without laughter. Um, but, but for now, it's, it's, it's certainly a part of this, this story. Um, the limits of education. I, I think this is a big one. And again, this is something that Harlem Renaissance writers are really interested in. How is uplift, is education, is hard work ever going to be enough in a fully racist society? And I think what we learn from Wallace's account here of Emma Lou is that no, it's not going to be enough. Education itself can't not help people overcome the deep prejudices and barriers caused by the color line. Um, we see here social, mo uh, so both social mobility up and down. Um, you know, she's trying to get education to move up, but more broadly, just moving around. I mean, this is again and again coming up in these stories that these people, uh, this generation of young African Americans, are not seen in one place, are not seen in their hometowns. They're moving around a lot. They're going to colleges. They're going to Harlem. They're some cases going to Europe. They're traveling all over the world and certainly all over the United States, making this migration from the parochial to the more international, to the more modern, to the more urban. Uh, Emma, Lou do, Emma, Emma Lou does that. Um, so it's it comes up again. It's it's a big thing here. I think she lives in, you know, like three or four places in this novel. Um, oh, wow. Uh, disability. Uh, this is the first novel in the, that I've looked at since I started this podcast that takes disability seriously now it's only a minor point it's all the junior it's all of his child is is just is disabled and we really get a pretty brutal examination of that where his parents don't love him reject him uh, see him as a burden and even think about killing him right so the the frustrations of being disabled and I think there's a subtext there that that as bad as it is to be born black in this in the 1920s a time when race relations were really bad you know, it would have been worse to be a disabled um, African-American. Um, so we'll keep our eyes open for other disabled characters and other examples of disability in other novels. Um, alcoholism is another theme. This comes up all, a lot in the story, alcoholism. Alva's alcoholic. Emma Lou is not, but she certainly misuses alcohol, binge drinks it a couple times, uh, makes bad decisions because of alcohol. Um, so... Now, Wallace Thurman's mother himself was a bootlegger, so he had um, a relationship with alcohol that goes back throughout much of his life. And he himself died of alcoholism um, or died of complications caused by alcoholism. So that's there. Um, and then finally, public amusements. We see the rent party. We see vaudeville. Emma Lou works for different actors, actresses. So public amusements is a big thing, big theme in this story. And in particular, how this entertainment is shaping and being shaped by race relations in, in the country at large. So those are my themes for The Black or the Berry. A really great novel, uh, really a lot of fun. It really has a lot to teach us. It's less pushy and less moralistic than 
than Plum Bun, but it deals with a lot of the similar themes. So I like it. Um, I, you know, I'm going to try to seek out some of Wallace Thurman's other work if I get the chance. So um, now I'm getting these novels from the Library of America Harlem Renaissance Collection, and it's in two volumes. The first volume is, was five volumes of the 20s. The second volume is four novels of the 30s. So I'm we're shutting down another book here, and I'm going to be opening up a new one. So if you're keeping track, you want to follow with the Harlem Renaissance four novels of the 1930s. And we'll be starting with Langston Hughes' only novel, his first and only novel, Not Without Laughter. So thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I'm really excited to begin uh, if, you know, closing the door on these Harlem Renaissance novels over the next couple of weeks. And I'm also excited to get started on my project of looking at the works of Philip K. Dick. I, I posted an uh, update um, previously about this, this, this shift to I'm going to be doing the Library of America stuff, but I'm also going to be reading the stories and novels of, of Philip K. Dick, just because I think he's so culturally relevant. So um, those, by the time this comes up, those should be up, well, at least a few of them should be up. So thanks for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions or thoughts, recommendations for the next series to begin, please uh, write me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can rate, subscribe, and share. I'd appreciate it if you did that um, on iTunes, or you can do it on Podbean directly. Um, so with that, I will leave you. Um, I'll see you in 100 Pages with Langston Hughes. up and find your door roll up gone you ever wake up and find your door roll up gone and you wring your hand you cry the whole day long and I told my one Lord before I left the town